Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to, to our program. Uh, we are in a study of the book of Jeremiah. We call the program The Expectations of Jeremiah. And as we're going through the book, we're reviewing all the different prophecies and the things that Jeremiah spoke about. And as you all know, uh, he spoke of a number of things, not only in his day, but he also spoke of many things having to do with the New Covenant and the Messiah, and even at the end of the ages and those that was going on with that. We are in the middle of the study. In fact, we're right now at chapter 32. If you join me there at that chapter, we're going to continue our study. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah. Because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he shall be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed." Uh, king Zedekiah, the king of Judah, did not like Jeremiah's prophecy. Jeremiah said, hey, the Babylonians are going to win, and oh, by the way, he's going to capture this place, and oh, by the way, you're going to be taken capture, and you're going to be hauled back to Babylon. And as you can imagine, uh, the king, who obviously wanted to maintain a uh, an atmosphere of leadership that he was going to prevail against the Babylonians didn't like this prophecy. And so to shut Jeremiah up, he basically just arrested him right there in the court and put him in the guardhouse where he wasn't able to go out and talk to anybody else. And it's explaining how Jeremiah was now in custody to the king of, of um, Judah and uh, that the king of Judah did not like uh, Jeremiah for what he was prophesying. Now, it wasn't a new prophecy. Jeremiah had been prophesying for several kings before leading up to Zedekiah that this was coming, that the, the enemies of Israel were going to come and prevail and that people were going to be taken captive. And, um, and, of course, the people didn't like that. The kings didn't like it. They kept fending off what, what Jeremiah was saying throughout the many years that he had warned them and, and warned them repeatedly. And, and so now we're at the crucial moment where uh, it's, it's giving us, this is the moment when Jeremiah now is in custody of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and because it's coming to, to fruition. In other words, the Babylonians have come and they've now laid siege to the walls of Jerusalem. And by the way, when a country would come and lay siege to the walls, they would surround the whole city, and they would begin the process of building what are called siege mounds. Um, and what that means is that they would take dirt and debris, and they would pile it up against the wall of the city to raise the elevation so that from the outside, even though all the walls are very high, there, there would be a ramp uh, in which that the attacking soldiers could just go up this ramp and go right over the top of the wall. 
And so when they would say that uh, the Jerusalem was being taken siege, um, what they're talking about is the Babylonians were beginning to build siege mounds all around. Now it's, it's, it's inevitable. If they continue to build those siege mounds, those walls become uh, ineffective in protecting the people and you're gonna be hand-to-hand -hand combat and Babylon has a ton of soldiers and Jerusalem only has a certain number of soldiers. And so it's kind of inevitable is what's going on. Now you can imagine in the moment while this is happening, the people inside the city are, are scared, uh, afraid of what could potentially happen. They can see the inevitability of what, what's coming. And here's Jeremiah saying, yeah, that's what's getting ready to happen to you. And that's not what they wanted to hear from inside anybody inside the walls saying such a thing. So they, um, uh, the king, of course, it now locks him up. Verse 6, and Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to, to me saying, both Hananel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, coming to you saying, buy for yourself a field which is Anatot, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Now, before we go any further, I want to make sure you understand what, what has just shifted. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and he's telling the people in Jerusalem, the house of Judah and the king, Babylonian is going to overwhelm you. So here he's now sending another message, and he sends it off to um, some family members, his family members. He says, I want you to go back to our hometown. And the hometown of where Jeremiah was from was this um, Anatote. And it's just north of Jerusalem by a short distance. He says, I want you to go back. He said, the land, you don't own the land right at the moment, but because you are the heirs to the land, and it will be returning to you in the year of Jubilee anyways, I want you to go back. You have the right of redemption. Go back and purchase the land. And when it says the right of redemption, here's what it's talking about. Uh, once the land had been apportioned out to all the tribes of Israel, it became the inheritance of that tribe. The descendants of the tribe would have that land. Now, occasionally, somebody would take their land and they would sell it to somebody else. But the sale of it could never exceed the year of Jubilee. It could only be sold for a certain period of time. And if, before we even get to the year of Jubilee, if one of the original heirs to the land wanted to, he could go back and purchase the land back again, even before the year of Jubilee. And there was a kind of a set price for this uh, as to how it was done. And so Jeremiah is, is telling his family members, I want you to go back and I want you to redeem some of that land, redeem our homeland, our, our, the place where we grew up from, that, that, that we belong to, that, that we have the right of redemption to it. I want you to go back and purchase that. Now, you got to ask yourself something. If the Babylonians are getting ready to come and wipe the whole place out and they're going to capture everything, why would you go buy land then? That's the first question that is begging of what's going on. Let's read on further. Uh, verse 8, Then Hananel, my uncle's son, came to me and in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and he said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anatote, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of, of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Jeremiah is saying, 
God told me to say this. And so he's officially putting a very stamp. This wasn't my idea. This is what the Lord told me to do. Verse 9, and I bought the field, which was an antidote from Hananel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. Now, apparently this land wasn't very expensive and there wasn't a whole lot involved because 17 shekels of silver, quite honestly, is not a great sum of money, um, you know, in, in Israel in those days. You know, a silver shekel was the basic coin of, of, um, that was used in almost all uh, purchases, and it only required 17 of them. So this wasn't a large purchase at all, but it was a purchase. And um, verse 10, And I signed and sealed the deed, and called the witnesses, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of the purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maaseah, in the sight of Hananel, my uncle, um, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of the purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. So he did this publicly with his family members, with witnesses, and he did it inside Jerusalem while he's under arrest, while he's under detention in the court of the guard. And I commanded Baruch in their presence, saying... Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. Now, in the ancients, and I'm sure you've heard of the uh, Qumran scrolls, uh, that was a fine in which they found these scrolls, ancient written documents, uh, that to seal them up, they had taken these clay jars and they had put the scrolls down inside and then they had sealed the lid on the jar so that no moisture could get into it. And this was the ancient way of you wanted to preserve a document for a long time. And in fact, pretty good method because we have the Qumran scrolls, it's, it, it, the scrolls will last for a long time. In fact, they can last thousands of years. And so he directed that these deeds for this piece of ground here in his hometown to be put into to those uh, jars uh, so that it would be sealed up, uh, as he says, uh, for a long time. And uh, the, uh, let me pick up here where he's saying, um, verse 15, For thus uh, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Now what he's doing is he's projecting into the future and he's saying, yeah, I know the Babylonians are coming and they're going to lay captive this place and they're going to take everybody captive and they're going to, you know, but there's a day coming when you're going to be able to buy this land back. And so he uses this one example of his own, his own hometown to say, go ahead, make the purchase, seal up the deed, uh, put it in a jar for a very long time, because eventually uh, what the Lord's going to do is he's going to be opening some kind of jars of his own, and he's going to be revealing the, who the true owners of the land are. Now... Let me 
step back for a moment and share something kind of interesting with you about what's going on in modern Israel today. If you'll recall, uh, there's a lot of controversy in Israel having to do with the, quote, Jewish settlements. I'm sure you've heard news accounts about talking about the controversy associated with those. A lot of Americans don't know this. Um, a lot of folks in the world don't know this. But every piece of ground that's in modern Israel today that the Jews are occupying and sitting on and claiming that they want to hold and is there, they purchased it from the Palestinians. Every settlement was bought and paid for, and there was a Palestinian that sold the land to them. Um, the Hula Valley was a, a major purchase that was bought. And now what the Palestinians have done, and this is by the Palestinian Authority, Yasser Arafat and all those folks, they came in and they said, well, you know, we, we don't honor uh, that agreement that you purchased it from some Palestinians, that it's our land and, and it's not for sale. And they have convinced the world that Israel is sitting on, quote, occupied land um, that doesn't belong to Israel, doesn't belong to the Jewish people, when in truth of fact, every piece of ground that is in Israel that the Jews are sitting on was purchased by the Jewish people. Every piece of it, every one of those different settlements, those Yesha communities and so forth, they were all purchased. And there was Palestinians who sold the land to them. Um, and, and yet the world is fighting Israel with regard to that. Now, just recently, with the new deal of the century that the president has put in effect, for the first time, we have an agreement now, from, and the United States is agreeing to this along with other nations, that all of those pieces of ground that were purchased by the Jews, all those different settlements, they belong to Israel. For the first time, they're not calling them occupied territory. For the first time, we're recognizing what is the truth about what is on the land. Now, what is the dynamic that's been going on in this whole generation? The Jews returning back, purchasing land, and so forth. It's this prophecy. It's the prophecy that Jeremiah said, even though there's going to become people come and, and take captive of the land. And so the day is coming when the deeds are going to come forth and they're going to prove that, that you, Israel, owns the land. And essentially, that is what is happening in, in the very day where we're at. There's a final recognition that these pieces of land bought by the Jewish people and different Jewish communities belong to them. The government of Israel does not lay claim to ground that has not been bought by Jews. In fact, there's a very famous plot of ground in Tel Aviv. It's not too far from where Yitzhak Rabin uh, was assassinated. There's this whole square block in, in downtown Tel Aviv that there's a big fence around it, a bunch of weeds growing and some trees and so forth, and there's nothing built there. 
That ground has been kept and preserved, and Israel has not permitted any Jews to go in and take that ground because it was known to be owned by a Palestinian family, and they've never sold that ground to any Jews. So the government of Israel, even though there's no Palestinians there laying claim to it, the, the Israeli government still honors the deed of that they know the land was owned by Palestinians, never purchased by any Jews, therefore they do not lay claim to the land. But the land that was purchased by Jews, they do lay claim to. And, but even though the Palestinians dispute it. So this whole argument that you've heard if you've been paying attention to um, Middle East peace negotiations about occupied territories and, and things like that, is, is debunked. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Jews have purchased all those pieces of ground. Now the Palestinians literally went around killing other Palestinians because they sold their land because they refused to, you know, and Arafat would go and terrorize any Palestinian that would sell his land um, whatsoever. And, and basically the Palestinians were stealing the land from their own Palestinian neighbors. But the land that was purchased by Jews, Israel has said, we're not going to give up. We own it. We have the deed, you know, for it. And this prophecy is speaking from Jeremiah saying, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when you will make these purchases and it will be your land. And so it's speaking to the restoration of what's taking place in the land of Israel today and the things that are happening even in this modern day that we have. Verse 16. And after I had given the deed of purchasing to Baruch the son of, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, O oh, oh Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, and thy dying outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands, but repayest the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah is actually quoting from Exodus 34. These are the words that God, while Moses was standing in the cleft of the rock, when God began to describe God to Moses. And Jeremiah is now repeating those words back to the Lord, acknowledging that he is the God that was at Mount Sinai, that he's the one who spoke to Moses. Verse 19, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, who has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and even to this day, both in Israel among mankind, thou hast made a name for thyself as it is this day. Thou did bring thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with strong hand, with an outstretched arm and with great terror, and gavest them this land, which thou didst swear to their forefathers to give to them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they did not obey the voice or walk in thy law. They had done nothing at all that thou commandst them to do. Therefore thou hast made all this calamity come upon them. Behold, the siege mounds have reached the city to take it. And a city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken has come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. 
And thou hast said to me, O Lord, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the land of the Chaldeans. Again, Jeremiah is, is going back, not only repeating some of the words that God spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai in the cleft of the rock, but he's reviewing the whole history about how God gave this land to Israel as a promise to the fathers and to their descendants, that God promised this land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants, and about how historically that is what in fact transpired. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were given the land of Israel. They settled on the land of Israel. But as Jeremiah said, from the very beginning, uh, the people of Israel did not obey the Lord. They did not walk out his commandments. And thus, here is this calamity that's come upon us because we walked away from him and we forgot the Lord. And the siege mounds from the Chaldeans, from the Babylonians, have come up to the walls and they're about to lay siege to the whole city and capture the city. So he's reminding them uh, of that whole thing. And then at the same time saying, and you have said... In the midst of all of that, you said, go and buy yourself a field with money. And he's looking at the contrast between what was happening at that very day and the contrast of something that's going to be happening in the future. Instead of laying siege to Jerusalem and siege mounds and capturing and being taken captive, and so there's a day coming when Israel will belong to Israel and they will own the land and they will dwell on it peacefully. That there's a day coming for that. Now we know that ultimately to be the day when the Messiah has returned and he's the king and he's in the city of Jerusalem and we're in the kingdom of God. We know ultimately that's what the prophets are speaking to. And so he's alluding to this wonderful thing that's going to be taking place into the future. Verse 28, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Let's go ahead and answer that right now. No. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. If the Lord says, I'm going to do a good thing to you, there is nothing that's going to stop him from doing that. And that's essentially the affirmation statement that he's making. I have said, I'm going to do this for you. I am going to do it for you. And there's nothing in front of me that's too difficult that keeps me from doing it. I love that statement. Verse 28, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall enter and set this city on fire and burn it with houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out libations to other gods to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been only provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger, my wrath, from the day that they built it, even to the day that it should be removed from before my face. Because of all of the evil, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah which they have done to me to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, and men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
and they have turned their back to me and, and, and not their face, though I taught them, teaching them again and again. They would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name, to defile it. And they built the high places of Baal, and there are in the valley of Behanan to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I have not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord God uh, concerning this city, with which you, are, you shall say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell safely. Did you hear that last statement? Even from this place where I drive them in my anger, from there I will bring them back. Now, a lot of I've heard a lot of different Christian teachers over the years in the course of my spiritual education who've said, well, part of the reason why Israel has been rejected by God is because, you know, the sins of Israel were just uh, horrendous. You know, that you can't really make an argument against that, uh, saying that the sins of Israel weren't horrendous, because they were. At one time, they were killing their children. They committed cannibalism. They, they, they did uh, unbelievable, atrocious things, defrauded, stole, uh, were terrible. And so the, the argument is not that, that Israel is not that bad. Israel definitely is that bad. Israel has been judged by the Lord. Everybody should be taking that for an example. The Lord is not going to put up with that stuff. But the one thing they always forgot to tell me was they forgot to tell me that the mercy and compassion of God is so great that he remembers the covenant he made with our fathers despite what we do, and he keeps the covenant for us. And this dates all the way back to when God firmed, uh, formed up the first covenant with Abraham, and where Abraham was instructed to take these five different sacrifices and flay them out and lay them out for an altar, and about how God uh, put him into a deep sleep. And God came in the form of a whirling, fiery tornado and walked down through the sacrifices and pronounced the covenant with Abraham at that time. Now, in that ancient ceremony, the way that would really work is that both parties would walk down through the sacrifices, in a sense, making testimony that if I fail to keep this covenant agreement that I've made with you, may I be flayed open like these sacrifices, may I be destroyed. God walked down through that, but Abraham did not. So what's that mean? That means that God has said that I will keep the covenant even to the extent of my death. And then it also says, and oh, by the way, for you, Abraham, and for your descendants, I will keep the covenant for you too. If you break this covenant with me and don't maintain it and don't keep it, I will pay the price for you. Do you understand now why the Messiah had to come and die for us? Was to maintain the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. He's come and paid the price so that the covenant remains in effect. 
And that is what is being spoken of by Jeremiah. God is able to keep the covenant with Israel regardless of what Israel does, to and including being judged by God and kicked out of the land of Israel. Even from there, I can bring them back, and I will keep the covenant. Now, those who may teach you, well, covenants are conditional. Uh, it's true, there's an exchange that takes place in the agreement called the covenant. But when God keeps both parts, which man is going to stand up and say that covenant is not intact? Which man is going to stand up and say, well, that covenant isn't anymore if God is keeping both parts? Because nobody can stand up and say God doesn't keep the covenant. He does keep the covenant, and he keeps it even for us. And that's the reason why the Messiah came and had to die for us to pay the price. God had to pay the price for our sins. And so that is the reason why we have the assurance that when this new covenant came, it was for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It was for Israel. When the Messiah comes back, I want to remind everybody, he's coming back to Jerusalem. He's not coming back to London, England, or Berlin, or Washington, D.C., or Salt Lake City. He is coming back to Jerusalem because the original agreement of the land and the kingdom is with the people of the land of Israel. Now, in no wise am I saying that it's exclusive to only Israel. Au contraire. It is very clear that this covenant that was de defined by God and set up with Abraham and his descendants that this was fully intended for the benefit of the whole world. He simply had to start working with one man, one family, one nation to begin to carry it out to all nations, all peoples, tribes, and tongues. And that's what we have seen. And we've seen him perform and keep his covenant, and we can therefore have the evidence for no person can stand up and say, we can't trust the Lord concerning this agreement. We can trust the Lord for this agreement. He has clearly affirmed and stated what this covenant is and what he intends to do. And despite Israel being judged, the house of Judah being judged by the Babylonians, God instructing this to take place, even from there, the Lord will bring them back. Even because of all of that stuff, he will still restore the house of Jacob. We continue on now. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do good. And I will faithfully plant them in the land with all my heart and with all of my soul. For thus says the Lord, just as I brought out all of this great disaster on this people, so I'm going to bring on them all of the good that I am promising them. And the fields shall be brought into this land of which they shall say, it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hand of the Chaldeans. 
and men shall buy fields for money. Sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Again, whether you realize it or not, there is a deed for the land of Israel and all parts of Jerusalem, and it's sealed up, and the Lord knows where the deed is at. And despite what has happened in the history of the world, despite what different kingdoms and civilizations have come against Jerusalem or whatever Israel has done in misbehavior, it doesn't make any difference. God has the deed to the land. And when he says that I'm going to take the inhabitants, uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to put them on this land, he has the right to do that. He has the authority to do that. And he says, I'm going to do that. So there should not be any hesitation on our part whatsoever as to how profound what Jeremiah has spoken here. From this understanding, as we look forward now and we understand how the Messiah came and did the work of redemption and the things that he spoke of, it is very clear that the first steps of this restoration, the first steps of God being able to work this plan was he has to go down and work in the individual hearts of believers. He can't come back as a corporate entity and say, well, okay, let's, let's call this group Israel, we'll form a constitution, blah, 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 and I'll start dealing with them. No, he said, I'm going to deal with you individually, face to face, one at a time. And then collectively, we'll bring you together and you'll be Israel then. Because every person will be Israel inside. Every person will know who the king is. Every person will have the Spirit of God to be a part of him. Every person will have been instructed in the ways of the Lord. In this modern day, as we see the final elements of the, of the gospel being shared out into the world, we're seeing this incredible restoral of many of the people who have this unction from the Holy Spirit to be a part of Israel. Some are my Jewish brethren. Some of my Jewish brethren are becoming believers in the Messiah and turning back uh, from the things of Judaism and the things of the, the, the culture of the community and they're returning back to the Torah and to the Messiah. Well, the same thing is happening with a lot of, uh, of Gentile Christians and believers. They have this love of Israel, the God of Israel. They're learning about who He is. They're learning about the God of Moses. They're learning about His commandments and saying, hey, keeping His commandments would be best. And so they're turning back to the Torah. They're turning back to the teaching of Moses. And as a result, they're returning back to the King of Israel, who's Messiah, Yeshua. And suddenly it's not just this head of the church thing and the church institution. Now it's become a much greater identity for these people that we are part of a program that God has been working from the very beginning and that the prophets spoke to. And we are living in the days where the, even the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the things that are happening to NRJ. And so I am personally very excited to see the words of Jeremiah taking full shape 
you know, even in our days as we see the things that are happening in the modern land of Israel. The purchasing of land, the deeds coming forth, uh, the inhabitants of the land moving back to the land and, and dwelling and living on the land, just as the prophecy said. This is all, these are all steps of the restoration that God has promised. All right, chapter 33. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord formed it and established it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. And while they're coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men, whom I've slain in my anger and in my wrath, I have hidden my face from the city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. And I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at the first, and I will cleanse them from all of their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all of their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all of the nations of the earth, which shall hear of the good that I shall do for them. And they shall fear and tremble, and because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. Thus says the Lord yet again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. That is, the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And of those who drink the thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land they were at the first, says the Lord. Now, this is a repeat of the same wonderful message that we heard earlier, although there's a little bit of a twist on this one, and that's the reason why I think the Lord spoke this again. If you'll look at verse 11, where there's a quotation, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. That is a piece of text that comes from what we call the Hillel Psalms. It's the final Psalms of the book of Psalms. These are all joyous Psalms, Psalms of praise, and so forth. These are the psalms that we sing and that we make a part of the Passover celebration. And normally in the Passover, why we'll have the four cups of the Seder of the Passover. But when we get to the final cup, which is called the cup of praise, we will have a series of these psalms. And one of the psalms that we will do is we will be saying these words. We sing these words. And in fact, 
in all of the traditional seders, if you get a normal traditional Jewish seder, at the, when it comes to the cup of praise and the final cup of the Passover, you will be saying these words or singing these words. When I wrote my own Passover Seder many, many years ago for Messianic believers, I made sure that these words were in there at the cup of praise. Now, if you'll recall from the Seder that the Messiah kept with the disciples, he did not drink that fourth cup. He said that he would not drink of that cup again until we're in the kingdom. So he was speaking in the keeping of the Passover with him that this fourth cup is yet a future thing. And he's echoing, are you ready for this? He's echoing the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is saying there's a day coming when things will be restored. And guess what? We will hear the voice of joy. There'll be gladness, the, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. And we will be saying these words, and these are the words we say at the Passover Seder. Um, when the Messiah returns, it is very clear that his return is associated with the fall feasts. Feast of trumpets, the sounding of the trumpet, uh, the voice of the archangel, and he comes back, the resurrection. Uh, Yom Kippur follows 10 days later, the Day of Atonement. It's called the Day of Reconciliation. It mimics the Day of the Lord, the great judgment of God that hits the earth. God's people have been lifted off the earth. God judges the earth. Then there's this wonderful celebration called Sukkot, the Feast of Ingathering, where all of the saints are gathered together with the Lord there for the first time in Jerusalem in many, many, many years. And we do that wonderful thing. We have that wonderful time together. If you follow the cycle, the next Levitical feast that follows will come in the springtime and it will be the Passover. And I believe at that Passover, the Messiah is going to sit down with us and eat the Passover Seder with us and he's going to drink that fourth cup. And he's going to be saying these words with us, and we're going to be saying these words directly to him. And that is what Jeremiah is referring to. There's a day coming when we'll offer the thank offering, and we will say these words. And this will be what the day will be like in Jerusalem, in the land of Israel, throughout the kingdom of God. It's an absolutely glorious and wondrous way of presenting again the future that Jeremiah is talking about when mourning turns to joy, when all of this trauma and calamity and trouble in the world uh, comes to a conclusion and Israel no longer disobeys the Lord, no longer transgresses, when their hearts are changed, which is what the Messiah is trying to do with us one person at a time, one heart at a time, to get us to change and turn back to the Lord today. And hopefully enough hearts will change and the Lord will bring about the end of the age and establish his kingdom. And all of the saints will be gathered together with him and we will dwell with the Lord in his kingdom. Verse 12, thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall again be in this place which is waste without man or beast in all its cities a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. 
in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland environs of Jerusalem. And in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them. Verse 14, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time, I will cause righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. That's a verse directly about the Messiah. The Messiah is the branch of David that springs forth, the root of Jesse that sprouts up from the olive tree. Verse 16, and in those days Judah shall be saved. Well, I love those words. I absolutely love them. They shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which they shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The reason why we say that is because the Lord's right there. He's right there. The righteousness is right there with us. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. Time out. What did Jeremiah just say? Now, he said that the Messiah is going to come forth. Well, we all know about that. And he said, the Messiah is going to be, the, the Lord is our righteousness, and he's going to be the king, the son of David. He's going to be the king of Jerusalem. He'll be the king of kings. There will be no other king above him and no other king after him. He will eternally be the king. And his, the, you can define eternity by how long will the Messiah be king. That is the definition of eternity. The, the Messiah is king forever. Then he says this, And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. He just said the Levitical priesthood will never go away. He said that if you believe that the Messiah is the king forever, then the Levites are priests forever. Now, we've talked about some of the, in the past, some of the confusion that's come about as a result of church teaching about the new covenant was for the Gentile church as opposed for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we've talked about that dynamic and how that is a huge error. Another huge error that the church has made is that they have gotten the idea that because God allowed um, Jerusalem to be destroyed in 70 AD and the temple to be destroyed, that somehow God also, not only in getting rid of Israel, decided to get rid of the Levitical priests and decided to get rid of the entire sacrificial system. And they go around claiming the Messiah is the final sacrifice and there is no more Levitical uh, priestly system and there is no... Uh, there is none of that. Now, the Catholic Church, they kind of took on a little spin of this. They decided, well, we're going to have a priesthood, but we'll call it the Order of Melchizedek, which is the priesthood of the Messiah as opposed to the Levitical priesthood. We don't want that same one the Jews do. We'll pick a new one. 
And so that's where the church got the idea. They were priests in the church, and they do after they they anoint self-anointed themselves to be after the order of Melchizedek. This Bible says that the Levitical priesthood has never gone away and will never go away. And that as long as the Messiah is the king of Jerusalem and sits on the throne of David, that Levitical priests will serve in the temple before him offering sacrifices daily, forever. There'll never be a lack for a priest to do it. Now, I understand that the sacrificial system has been disturbed, the temple system has been disturbed, the whole temple service has been altered and, and stopped because of the captivity of all of Israel and throughout all of the nations because of the Roman captivity. I understand that. Those are, I, I'm not disputing those, aren't, those are historical facts. But let's go back to God's original promise when he talked about the house of Judah when they were going to go to Babylon. He said, yeah, yeah, you're going to go to Babylon and so forth. He said, but from there, I'm going to bring you back. Despite what you have done, I'm going to bring you back. And the reason why I'm going to bring you back is because I made promises to your father Abraham and to his descendants that I'm going to do it. And by the way, I'm the one that keeps the covenant, and so it's going to happen. And nothing is too difficult for me to do. That same principle that God used with expressing to with regard to what was going to happen to the Babylonian cavity also applies to worldwide captivity for Israel since the Roman uh, took, took uh, Israel captive throughout the nations. Today, we have Israel coming back and coming into the land of Israel again, reestablished as a nation again. We have a whole world full of people who believe in the God of Israel, believe in the Messiah, personally have benefited from the new covenant the Messiah has given to us, the personal redemption that we have, and we're yearning and looking forward to the kingdom and his return. In conjunction with his return is his promise to restore the whole house of Jacob, to gather the scattered exiles from all of the lands, wherever they may be, to bring them back to Jerusalem so that he may dwell in his house in Jerusalem and that we will come to worship the Lord in Jerusalem at his temple. And when we come to worship him and follow the temple service, guess who's going to be assisting us as we present our gifts to the Lord? Levite priests. They are going to be, it's not going to be Catholic priests. It's not going to be Greek Orthodox priests or any other priests. Is going to be the Levitical priests, the descendants of Aaron. They will be the priests that will be serving there. And there will never, ever in the kingdom be a lack for them to be there. Now, for those who would teach the theology that the priesthood has gone away, that the Messiah has replaced all of that, they are in air every bit as much about that as they are in air about God has given up on Israel. To emphasize this again, if you remember when I took you through Jeremiah 31, God said, I will always maintain Israel. The offspring will never be rejected. Look at the order of the sun and the moon, the day and the night. 
And if you can alter that order, then it's possible I could reject Israel. But unless you can see that order is changed, I will never reject Israel. Look at the way Jeremiah repeats to us about how important it is for the Messiah to be the king forever and for the Levitical priest to serve before him. If Verse 19, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day, my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, and he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. If you believe that the Messiah is the son of David on the throne of David, king forever, then equally along with that sentence, you have to say the Levitical priests will be his ministers. That's what it says. And it says, this is for certain as long as we have the order of the day and the night. Um, obviously, if we don't have the order of the day or the night, we don't have the planet, we don't have the universe, and we don't exist. But as long as we exist, as long as this universe exists, this is what is going to be. Verse 22, as the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. <coughs> and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying the two families which the Lord chose? He has rejected them. Thus they despise my people. No longer are they a nation in my sight. This is Jeremiah making the argument that those that would say Israel is no more that the Levitical priests are no more. He's making the argument that they say, thus says the Lord, verse 25, if my covenant for day and night shall, shall, shall not stand not, and the fixed patterns of the heavens and the earth have not been established, then I would re reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, not taking from their descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. In the last moment, let me just uh, conclude what we've learned in chapter 33. Not only has God made the most affirmative statement of his intention through the work of the Messiah to restore Israel completely, including the land, including the temple, including the temple service, but he's saying and challenging anyone who would take issue with that and say differently than that, if you can change the order of the sun and the moon, then maybe that's possible. But as long as that doesn't change, what I'm telling you is the truth. Brethren, let me just say to you, no longer listen to anyone, even if they claim to be a believer in the Messiah. Do not listen to anyone who tells you that God's word and his promises are temporary. Do not listen to them. I am here to tell you that the word of the Lord is true. It is correct. And he will do exactly what he has said. And he has said, Israel will be before me forever. And the Levitical priests will serve before me forever. Do not listen to that tripe. 
about Israel isn't anymore and that the church has replaced it or that the priesthood don't exist and the temple service is no more. It's ridiculous. It's so contrary to the Word of God, it's unbelievable. Let us take God's counsel and not that of men. Shalom, everyone. We'll see you next time for the study. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom.